The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Please, folks, do me a favor, given that I do this as a solo effort and that this is not my day job. Uh, please rate, review, spread the word around Lead Lag Live. Joining me for the hour is Professor uh, Catherine Judge, uh, who I saw a number of people that I track, follow, uh, look a little bit deeper into her uh, work. I think this will be a really interesting conversation. Uh, Professor Judge here, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get involved and interested in uh, the middleman economy, which we'll talk about, and what are you doing now? Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor at the law school at Columbia. I actually spend a lot of my time moving through a variety of different circles uh, involved in banking and intermediation. So a lot of my work has been stemming out originally the financial crisis, trying to figure out how we build a more resilient financial system, which just got me interested in intermediation generally, like how money flows and through whom. Uh, I recently wrote a book, Direct, and that really was exploring how the intermediation patterns that we've seen in finance of increasing size, increasing complexity, and longer chains also occurred outside of finance. And, and there was a real interplay between the two. So there was a lot of efficiency gains and some specialization, but also some real costs. And right now is actually a really fun time just because there's a, a lot of live energy about trying to think through a lot of the design issues. So I was in DC for a couple of conferences last week, really trying to understand you know, as we're going through yet another pivot with economic policy, how do we start to think about supplying the types of credit that we want and need to to make those changes? So there's the the supplying of the credit and then, of course, the cost of credit, right? And I think at the core, correct me if I'm wrong, really a lot of this relates to the the problem of, of a lack of competition, right? I've made this argument before that seems like in every single industry, almost everything's an oligopoly, right? Run by just a couple of major companies, which happens because every single recession wipes out the smaller players, rates go lower, and then the bigger players consolidate more and more uh, power. How do you think through sort of um, access to capital versus cost of capital when it comes to the modern economy? A couple things there. First, I agree it's about cost, not just access, but I would say it's also access and cost through the credit cycle. And that's one of the reasons people who just focus on competition policy oftentimes have to take a step back and really start to understand the area when you're looking at financing. One of the things that we see quite often is we have boom cycles where credit is readily available and it's readily available on the cheap, at least in particular sectors. 
but then you end up with an overdevelopment in that sector at times. And more, uh, the more disconcerting is as soon as conditions change, that that access to credit disappears. So that really accentuates the the magnitude of the correction. So of course we see this in housing, but as you're pointing out, we also see this in businesses. And so I think particularly as we're thinking about banks and fintechs and the interplay between the different types of intermediaries that we have out there right now, we really want to think who is getting capital, who's getting capital in what term, and how do we make sure that capital continues to be available? So if you have a small business, it's not going to just be able to get credit when things are going well, but actually when things start to go badly and it really needs that credit in order to survive, in order to thrive, it's still going to have that access. And I think that's where a lot of the, the exciting energy is right now. And going back to the point of competition, presumably part of that access to credit means you need to kind of go back to a period where there's less concentration around the big banks, more focused around regional banks and kind of local financing. Yeah. I mean, so uh, one of the things I think some people appreciate, but maybe not fully, is the United States has a very, very different banking sector than a lot of countries. well, traditionally, we were really worried about centralization of power, and we were particularly worried about centralization of power when it came to control over finance. So we not only famously had, of course, the separation between investment banks and commercial banks, but even more significantly, we really limited bank branching. So you had community banks smattering the country. Um, and then what we saw were two different trends. Uh, that were related but distinct. One, um, starting around 1980, uh, we saw a massive increase in the concentration of the largest banks. So we've had, on average, 400 bank mergers a year for the last 40 years. Um, and so that real, and a lot of that was the largest banks growing to be these globally systemic institutions that they now are. Um, and so we had a far more concentration in the top three and really the top six. And then we also then have all these smaller, still community banks, and regional banks. And, and part of what's interesting, going back to your point on competition, is traditionally they did more relationship-based lending. So they were also willing to take a lot more chances on small business lending because they thought they were building relationships. So the most recent stats from the Kansas City Fed show that community banks provide about 40% of small business loans, even though they only provide 17% of overall credit for the economy. Uh, But even that's less than it used to be. So part of what's interesting right now is, is this core question of, you know, we're using competition policy to try to deal with competition in ways of breaking up big players or at least like putting constraints on their power. Uh, But a lot of the other question is, if we want to allow small and mid-sized enterprises to really flourish, like how do we make sure that the smaller banks, the community banks, that have really been the providers of credit for those types of businesses continue to thrive as well. Yeah, when you said relationship lending, my mind went to George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, right, in terms of the regional banks or relationship with with his town. And I think that that is, it makes sense, that is lost, obviously, the more consolidation there is among the banks, the banks, in order to move the needle, only want to have relationships with those that have the most money, who don't necessarily need the financing, except that they want the lower rates that are offered to them. And that stat around the the mergers is interesting. You said, I think, 400 bank mergers a year for 40 years. What what was the catalyst that it really kind of enabled that, right? Because 
we do have antitrust laws. I mean, yes, obviously M&A is not illegal, but uh, there gets to be a point where you have to kind of sit up and, and take notice of this. And I will say bank regulators are sitting up and taking notice. So there is actually a new kind of notice for proposed rulemaking from all the different bank regulators where they're really trying to figure out what should the standards, what are the standards that we should employ when reviewing bank mergers. And DOJ is doing a similar exercise with respect to that competition prong where they still have jurisdiction. They currently have guidelines that haven't been updated since 1995. Um, and, and so there's going to be a really healthy effort underway to try to rethink those guidelines. And so I think part of what we had was really a different vision over what the what we wanted the economy to look like that got baked into different standards for allowing those bank mergers. So again, one of the things that we did was we just repealed through Eagle Neal and other acts a bunch of the limitations that had existed on the ability of banks to engage in uh, cross-state activity and, and branching of various sorts. So we reduced a lot of the regulatory burdens. And then we really shifted uh, in a whole variety of ways and not just in finance, as you well know, to really encouraging actually, or at least facilitating, uh, creating very little friction on the ability of banks to merge with other banks. Uh, the Community Reinvestment Act actually ended up being one of the biggest frictions. Uh, so there was oftentimes some attention to whether or not there was protection of provision of credit and, and financial services in historically minority areas. But we really created a, a, a relatively modest level of friction. And I think that was belief at the time. I mean, I think the belief at the time was by allowing banks to grow larger, we're actually going to make them more resilient. Because now, unlike George Bailey, they're not going to be completely exposed to just one little geographic area. They can be geographically diverse. They can have diverse different types of lines of business. And so when one's doing well, the other's not doing as well. And they're going to have economies of scale and scope. And that's going to result in greater efficiencies. And, you know, it's the 1990s. I think that 1997 was actually the peak number of mergers. So we're just going to assume that those efficiencies are going to be passed on to consumers in the form of cost savings. So they're going to get more access to credit. They're going to get better credit on better terms. And realistically, it was an overall era of globalization. And we thought that if we had large multinational corporations, we needed large multinational banks to serve those large multinational corporations. So implicitly, we allowed those set of values to really shape the, the bank mergers that we allowed and encouraged. Is there a link to inflationary cycles with concentration of, of banks? And I say that because it's, it's kind of like any industry curve, right? So somebody wants to become the dominant player, they lower the prices, they take out the other competitors. Then once there are fewer other competitors, now they can raise prices and get juicier margins. The argument would always be that, well, the moment then that sole company or group of companies uh, has market dominance, other players kick in. I think that's a little bit challenging in an age of big data, which we'll get into. But any sort of, any studies or any kind of link to, if you have so much concentration of power, it makes the likelihood of stickier inflation uh, more than before? You know, it's a really good question. I don't think there actually is good empirical data that they've yet been able to show that. And one of the interesting benefits and challenges in the United States is that along with having a really robust banking system, is we have a very robust market-based system of intermediation. I say that's a challenge because traditionally when cracks have started to emerge in the system, 
that is where they started to merge. So we've done done a perfect job with bank regulation by any means, uh, but we at least know we need to have robust prudential oversight in place. uh, And that is costly. And so that helps to drive uh, a lot more of the activity into the non-bank space. And so whether it was money market mutual funds or or bond-backed, you know, we saw the open-end corporate bond funds really experiencing significant runs in March 2020. Uh, it's oftentimes in those spaces that, that problems uh, initially emerge. The good news, if there is good news, is the spare tire idea. It's that like Europe actually recovered perhaps more quickly than Europe from the 2008 crisis. Because even as banks were struggling, we had a market-based system of intermediation that could come in and help to provide at least some credit. So again, it provides a lot more credit to big companies than it does to small. And so that could help to facilitate the recovery when banks are struggling. So again, a core challenge was trying to understand the impact for banking is just overall cyclicality and the fact that the government comes in and not just the obvious ways of Fed lending, but through federal home loan bank support and a bunch of other mechanisms. So it really skews uh, some of the the research you might otherwise want to do. Let's talk about... um direct your book for a little bit here, Rise of the Middleman Economy. Now, I listened to your prior podcasts, and I think it's important to distinguish you know, middleman versus middleman economy. I know you've made that point quite a bit. But first of all, what was the impetus for writing the book, and how did you go about putting the research together to ultimately uh, pen it? Yeah. I mean, so the, the research really came because most of my work, again, had been in banking. And so it was looking at the way we went from these small community banks that use relationships to these large banks that had efficiencies, but also had a lot of drawbacks, in part because they were using data, uh, to your point. And they were saying, we can get a bunch of data together. We can put a bunch of technology at the problem. We can standardize underwriting in ways that's going to make it more rigorous, bring those economies of scale scope into place. And so suddenly you went from having 16,000 small community banks uh, to less than half that number of banks. And more importantly, like a huge amount of concentration among the biggest players and all the standardization also facilitated these longer and much more complex capital supply chains as loans ceased to be held on bank balance sheets and instead were securitized. And you could make these very standardized reps and warranties because of the very different underwriting process. And, you know, I think we sometimes forget that home ownership was at a peak. Uh, in 2006, and actually the the racial wealth gap, for example, or the and the racial housing gap, uh, were had really been brought down. So it looked like we created gain of incredible efficiencies, but then of course the other shoe dropped. And then the motivation for the book was once I started to look beyond banking, we saw the exact same two trends. So Amazon and Walmart are one and two on the Fortune 500. Uh, they are incredibly large companies. They are also the two biggest employers. Um, that we have in in the United States. Um, And they've really transformed where and how goods are made. Uh, You look in areas like, I spent some time looking into farming. Uh, Cargill is the the biggest private company, depending on the metric at times, in the United States. Uh, And and again, it's not growing crops, but it is transforming the entire ag sector uh, and the concentration that it plays in facilitating the flow of food. So what the book really documents is when we think about globalization, that is clearly part of what has happened, but it would not be possible without the changing design of intermediation, 
which really means this combination of incredibly large intermediaries, incredibly large middlemen that are feeding and, and fed by these ever longer, ever more complex supply chains. There's a real informational advantage. I mean, uh, yes, the, the companies in the Dow Jones Industrial Average today are very different than the ones from you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Because companies come and go. But it seems to me that it becomes harder and harder in an era of large data to unseat the Amazons of the world because they have such a, a head start on all this data, which causes them to get ahead of any competitors that could possibly try to challenge their dominance. It's a huge deal. And it's one of the the pieces that we'd been too slow to see. I think originally the onset of the internet led many people to think that we were going to move beyond the need for middlemen. So back in the early 1990s, you know, Bill Gates was saying, you know, we need banking, we don't need banks. And, and people really thought like maybe the demise of the middleman is imminent because now that the role that they've played traditionally helping to overcome not just logistic challenges, but informational challenges is going to potentially be less valuable because we can just connect directly with producers, you know, through this amazing online uh, forum. And we have seen a little of that, you know, travel agents used to be like a meaningful part of our economy and they've really dwindled out and, you know, I want to book a flight. I go to Delta.com. Um, so so they play a much more smaller role in some spaces. But part of what's interesting is, and this goes to, is the data point, in that process, actually, uh, one of the things that we've seen is online also produces an incredible amount of data. And companies have become far more sophisticated in how they utilize the data. So when you go to Amazon, you're not walking in a department store that's been laid out for the generic best customer. You are logging onto a website that is giving you an online personal experience that is specifically catered to your past shopping history as informed and reflected by what they know about the purchase decisions from a bunch of other people who have shopping patterns that are similar to you. And, and again, we're, it's still far from perfect, but, but it is a data advantage that makes it so they can not only get you to kind of buy one or not only allow you to get what you want really easily, but show you a bunch of things that you didn't know you wanted uh, and, and change your buying behavior. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Which is interesting, right? Because, I mean, the real value of the internet, I think, is the idea that there's really no switching costs or very minimal, right? Because you can easily go to another site and click a button and, you know, all these checkout <laughs> flows are pretty much the same. But yet people only will keep on gravitating towards the Amazons, partially because of, you know, the name, the brand. But also I think there's an element where you can argue it's almost search engine driven, right? The the 
people, as you know, only go to the, the the top of the fold and usually the first page result on you know Google and other search engines. The competitors are probably on the second and third, and they're never even actually seen unless they pay to play through through advertising. And that is a huge part of it. So so part of it is like in theory, you can go directly to all kinds of different players, but your time is valuable. You don't want to try to figure out who do I trust, how much do I trust them. Uh, and so part of what we've learned is if people want to search, they go to Google. Uh, so AdWords is incredibly valuable. Uh, for people who regularly shop online, they start on Amazon.com more often than they start on Google, actually, when they're shopping for a guide. But I will also say uh, these companies have done a great job doubling down on their ability to capitalize on their data advantages through a bunch of other mechanisms. So, I mean, Amazon really has done a remarkable job building out this incredible logistical infrastructure <laughs> through which it can get you goods faster and faster and faster. And then that little blue check for Amazon or the little uh, Amazon Prime instead of the blue check is like, it's like the signal that this is something we're going to get you and we're going to be able to get you really quickly. And, and that's been transformative. One, because it makes more and more people become Amazon Prime members. And once you are an Amazon Prime member, everything else feels cheaper. So even if you join just for, you know, access to music and access to, to certain video footage, once you're a member, it feels free, even if it's not, uh, for the delivery. Every time you're getting something else on Amazon.com. And then just as importantly, it means for those third-party sellers, not only are they going to probably have to pay now for advertising because there's so many people who are selling through Amazon, but they're also going to pay Amazon for the benefit of having Amazon warehouse and ship all of their goods. So there's been some really, really great work done by the Institute the local self-reliance uh, that shows that the portion of each transaction where you're not buying on something for Amazon, but instead it's Amazon Marketplace, you're buying from a third party. The proportion of each of those transactions that's going to Amazon has gone up notably each year for the past eight years. So part of what's interesting is there's real costs here, but they're putting those costs in places where the sellers feel them a lot more than the buyers. Right, I've seen some some things that show that um, if a third party seller is on Amazon and they're very successful, now Amazon knows that they have the data, and then they're competing against them directly. So that's exactly what they do. And I, this is going back to the data point too of the interlock between finance and non finance. They started to play a role, actually helping to provide short term credits. Because guess what, they have all of your data. Um, and so this is actually one of the really interesting questions. First of all, the dangers of big tech getting into finance, uh, but also they might be able to offer you credit on really a much more favorable terms right now relative to anybody else because they don't only have the data, but they have the ability to collect. Uh, but then there's the question of, are they going to keep being making that credit available if and when you actually need it? Or does the richness of data mean they pull access as soon as any kind of shock hits and you actually need need access to that credit. So, so there's a whole bunch of fun dynamics there. Right, and that's why I went back to that question around if there is you know any data that suggests all this ultimately leads to sort of a higher average inflationary cycle uh, than what we've seen in the past. Now, the other part of this, of course, is that with more power comes more lobbyist dollars and less will willpower, right, by by political leaders, lawmakers to either create and adjust the antitrust laws 
for the current times, uh, like you said, with the mid nineties, right. was kind of on the banking side, the last major <laughs> update or whatever you want to call it. But, but that, that also creates a, a strange dynamic too, where it, it gets even more entrenched because those that are in power need those dollars to get reelected. Yeah. And that's an, another challenge issue that I spent a lot of time on the book. One of the mistakes I think of a lot of, policy making and actually more academic work about policy making over the last 30 40 years is the effort to introduce rigor means we often disaggregated power so we have you know we look at market power and we have things like hhi indicators that we might look at but we didn't realize is the resources the relationships the information that can allow you to distort the markets where you're operating are also the same set of tools, or at least an overlapping set of tools that can give you outsized voice and outsized influence in shaping the policies governing the, the spaces where you operate. And we see this in banking over and over again. And then you also see the same patterns outside of banking. And again, it's partly you have all the resources, like you said, like we, we are now in a world where companies have First Amendment rights to, to give money to politicians. But a lot of it's expertise. You know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about that, that overall trend towards the large banks and, and towards securitization. It's not that nobody noticed. This was also leading to a lot of really disturbing predatory lending. Actually, a lot of states did notice that. And so you saw North Carolina initially and then other states in the early aughts saying, we're really worried about predatory lending in the mortgage space. And we're going to adopt new laws that protect borrowers in our states because we think that there's abusive lending patterns that are actually not in the interest of borrowers. And then what happened is the federal thrifts and then the federal banks went to the regulator and said, North Carolina says they're looking out for consumers. They don't really get that having a national standard is necessary for securitization. And that's what's going to allow lending on more favorable terms to borrowers in their states. So you need to come in and preempt the ability of any of these like pesky little states from trying to look out for consumers because they don't really know what they're doing. And so we did see originally the Office of Thrift Supervision and then the, the comptroller following preempting all these state anti-predatory lending laws in the mortgage space precisely <laughs> when they were most needed. So, so it is that ability to not only distort the marketplace and shape the marketplace, but really distort and shape the, the laws and other policies governing behavior that operate together to result in some of the, the outcomes that are most troubling and that we've seen. Right. And that, that local focus is really important. It's like you can't, you know, everyone talks about the, the housing shortage, but the housing shortage is a function of a lot of local red tape and regulations around, you know, being able to even build a home. And, and there's so many nuances in every single uh, zip code that you can't come up with sort of a, a one-size-fits-all federal answer to try to stimulate more inventory. You have to do it with hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you know, I'd argue from what you're saying that lending and financing is a similar dynamic. Yeah. And the hard thing is, you are, you, I mean, you always need to have a little bit of both, right, uh, in terms of the dynamics at play. Because like sometimes the local officials, as with predatory lendings, we're actually doing the right thing. They really actually understood the challenges before the federal regulators did. But we also have at times the fact that that state legislatures can be 
more inclined to do things that are favorable for you know folks in their jurisdictions. So for example, if you look at electric vehicle penetration, uh, it's actually correlated not to what anybody would normally think in terms of you know how environmentally conscious the local populace is. It's do you have a bunch of protectionist rules at the state level that require you to use a car dealership <laughs> when really a lot of these uh, electric vehicle firms are also developing more innovative, more direct ways of selling cars. So, like we don't want a really expensive dealership. You know, our clients know who we are and like we can sell it to them directly. So, so you both have protections policies at the federal and the state level. And then you feel that, and then so part of what you really need to do is figure out like who are, who's really being served here. And, and that's where you got to get into the details. Let's talk about how um, some of these dynamics around online lending and uh, online banks are changing dynamics, making them maybe better or worse. I know you wanted to touch on Silvergate. I don't know too much about it other than the headlines that I see. But you know, what are some of your thoughts in terms of how that's kind of popped up from a competition perspective? And what are the, some of the broader implications? Yeah. Um, and we can get to Silvergate or not get to Silvergate. The federal loan banks generally, I've gotten more back into the, the banking space. But part of what's interesting is we have really started to see a much more robust focus on competition policy and promoting healthy competition and, and, and really trying to break down some of the centers of power and centers of concentration in the Biden administration. And even the, under the Trump administration, there were not nearly the same, but some modest efforts in that direction. So those concerns with concentrations of power and understanding it's not just about consumers, it's also about workers, it's also about innovation, it's also about investment, uh, has been a real shift. But to be able to make it long-term sustainable, where we're not only engaging in these these top-down efforts to constrain concentrations of power, but also creating an environment that allows small and mid-sized businesses to really flourish means trying to figure out like how do we actually get access to credit in a reliable way to those firms. And I think that's the, the next set of policy issues that we're going to see. So, so part of it is this more robust approach to antitrust, but part of it also is how do we create the overall conditions? So you got to make sure you have a regulatory environment and other conditions that allow these smaller businesses to, to, to flourish? And how do we make sure that they have capital? And, and again, I was at Down in D.C. for a couple of conferences last week. And so it really was a minor from the, the efforts to, to revise the bank merger guidelines and, and to see the different bank regulators work through those issues to questions like the future of the federal home loan banks, which you know people know so little about. Can we start to reorient some of these different tools in a collective way where we're really creating the the credit creation infrastructure that we need to support the types of businesses that people want to be able to to see survive. I'm curious how um, the crypto collapse plays into that. And I say that because, you know, there is a, a <laughs> there was a lot of, a lot to be made in terms of, you know, fake yield uh, as far as lending of various cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, obviously a lot of this stuff ended up being fraud as we've seen. But, you know, part of the appeal of the space is that you're banking the unbanked, right? Which means there's a degree of credit flow that comes from that. Regulators are very behind on that space. Any any thoughts on how that might impact the the broader 
credit flow access issue? Yeah, I mean, crypto has been a very interesting space in a whole variety of ways, because in some ways, it looks like it should be a great thing, right? It looks like if what we have is a system that's outdated because of the outsized influence that these large banks play and government policies play, creating a brand new system that organically arises from the bottom up to better serve the needs of individuals, seems like that should be exactly what we want to have happen. But of course, a a core challenge is if you look at how power has actually been allocated, who has gotten rich at the expense of whom and the types of promises made, crypto was never the bottom up, let's actually try to redistribute wealth and redistribute access uh, in the way that that sometimes it, it purported to be. And I will say on the problem of unbanked and underbanked, it continues to be a real, real challenge in the United States. But the most recent numbers are remarkably heartening. Uh, the FDIC's most recent survey shows that the unbanked population is now only 4.5%, which the lowest it's been since they've been doing the survey. It's still over 10% uh, for Black and Hispanic households. So it's still something that, that needs significant attention. But those figures are all at, at historical lows. And one of the interesting reasons is because the banks played such a central role, getting stimulus support out. They also played a huge role in getting PPP out. And so part of what people realize is the cost of being unbanked went up a lot because either you didn't get your money or you got it, but with a very, very significant delay. So in some ways, it's a sign of how bad it is that we were relying on the banks because it meant that the people who most needed the funds were the, the last ones to get them. But it has, and and banks are also starting to provide, thanks to a lot of really healthy policy pressure, cheaper access to to basic banking products. So it continues to be a real challenge, but there has at least been some moves in the the right direction on those fronts. Yeah, and as we know, it's obviously a much more, you know, more serious dynamic outside the U.S., I'm curious, I know a lot of your work is focused more on the U.S., but any interesting dynamics when it comes to looking at the international landscape of middleman economy in economies in Europe, in emerging economies, how any of that differs from the U.S.? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I mean, there are both similarities and differences, right? So Bill part economy is partly how we got a more globalized economy. And I do think it's always really important to, to acknowledge that even though it tended to exacerbate wealth differences within the United States and within a number of other, you know, highly industrialized countries, it actually reduced income inequality between countries as were, you know, companies managed to utilize, some might say exploit, uh, cheap labor and, and at other times weaker regulation in different countries. Beyond that, it is really interesting to look at different countries because these systems at times have come up in similar ways, but also they look quite different. I mean, like Europe just has a lot more small and mid-sized enterprises. It also has a lot fewer broadly held firms that we have in the United States and they have significantly more family held firms. 
and they have a lot more banks and a much less robust capital market system. So part of what's interesting and challenging when you're trying to do those comparisons is they're different along so many different dimensions, even apart from also having a, a different set of, of policy priors. So it is really helpful at times to look in different areas. So for example, one of the areas I looked at a lot was the real estate market, because that is an area where you know buying and selling a home, you used to always need a full service real estate agent because it was just like hard to figure out what homes were for sale. The internet should make it a heck of a lot easier. Internationally, the cost, the amount paid to real estate agents has come down dramatically in the United States. We're oftentimes still paying 5%. So in particular areas where it's more apples to apples, you can actually look and say like, okay, there's particular dynamics that allow us to try to understand why an entrenched system has perpetuated itself in a way that is obviously suboptimal because we see such obviously superior systems abroad. But the United States is just so idiosyncratic in both the structure of its banking system and the relationship of its banking system to these like non-bank areas that, that there's learning to be done, but you have to do it in a really context-sensitive way, unfortunately. Is there any way to get people to go more directly to the source? Uh, so uh, this goes back to, you know, the power of going to the source, which is kind of the, the title uh, as well to direct your book. And I say that um, really because, uh, again, attention spans are very short. People, available heuristic is what dominates most consumers' minds in terms of where they purchase. It seems like you need to have sort of a, a bottom-up movement, but it's hard to do that uh, when people are just so easily distracted and they can just go to where they bookmark on their on their browser. Yeah. And so I think part of what we have to recognize is it's going to be a balance. You know, it's not about going to direct all the time. And and a lot of the book really explores the drawbacks and the benefits of intermediaries, but then shows how we have gotten to a suboptimal place by virtually any metric, whether it's individual well-being or if it's like how to allocate scare resources and, and who's really benefits in, from the, the system. So, so the core idea, I would say, is starting in one or two places. Part of another motivation from the book, I mean, part of, I talked about earlier how it came out of my work, it also really sprung from my life. And, and part of what I realized is, yeah, like you, everybody else and everybody's listening right now, I was just incredibly busy. And so, yeah, you do what's quick, you do what's easiest, you jump online, um, and there's a huge convenience factor to, be able, to being able to do that. But then there was parts of my life where actually I would go directly. And we've seen a growth in the demand. And we've seen actually a proliferation of farmers markets that are not all that convenient. We've seen a proliferation of community-sponsored agriculture. We've seen like local breweries popping up all over the place, like local coffee shops. And this is also happening kind of throughout the country. I'm, I'm giving the you know inaugural family and small business lecture at University of South Carolina next month. And, and part of what is driving me down there, but I think part of why they invited me is there's also these incredibly exciting things happening in places like Columbia, South Carolina. It's not about just the the big cities uh, where there really has been a renewed attention to what are the structures that allow us to promote our community, promote a sense of community, and, and allow us to kind of build wealth and meaning in a localized way. So the first efforts have always been about, a lot of it has been about kind of shopping local, uh, but the good could be from anywhere. And shopping direct is kind of the, just the, the next level of that. It's if you, for even a couple of areas of your life, can buy something directly from the source, 
that allows you just to be reminded that everything you're buying, everything I'm feeding my family, all the clothes I'm putting on my little girls, they're made by people. There's an environmental impact. There's a personal impact. And, and oftentimes, precisely because those are not salient and they are intentionally not made salient in the Mediterranean economy, I forget about the amount of exploitation and harm that can be involved. And so going direct in, in small ways is partly just a way of, of reopening that, that awareness and that appreciation. Yeah, and if you just you just hit it, it's 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 sort of a distinction of city versus non-city, right? Because even going back to the attention span and and just time, right? If if you're in the city and you're insanely busy because everyone's competing against against uh, each other because uh, you know everything's so expensive in cities relative to outside of cities, uh, you're probably not going to care so much about that that local going to the source because you don't have time to. Whereas you know maybe there's an element of being more local just by being outside of these major city centers. I think that happens. I mean, I think that's part of what's interesting about economic policy making right now is for so long it was technocracy driven and it was technocracy uh, where people who were living in a very small handful of cities, uh, which really shaped what they saw and also shaped what they didn't see and couldn't quite imagine. And I think we're seeing a really healthy effort to bring a broader set of voices, a broader set of possibilities to the table. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean eliminating everything we had, but just like dramatically expanding the, the range of options on the table. And that means looking outside the obvious places. So we'll say even in Manhattan, you can go to the little coffee store. There's, you know, like all kinds of like small breweries and distilleries that are popping up. So I would, and you also see places like Etsy, which are not fully direct, but are at least, you know, a movement in that direction. So, so there certainly is a trend underway, even if right now it, it remains more on the fringe. So when you're talking about access to capital, there's a fundamental question of how much of it should be equity financing versus some type of debt financing. And most bank financing is going to be debt financing. And, and maybe what we need are a greater variety of mechanisms providing equity-based financing. And and even places like Ohio, you know, have these like state programs that are really trying to, to provide some of that seed capital which I think is really critical. There's a whole variety of other programs. And then there are a bunch of other really interesting programs with entities like CDFIs that are trying to provide support in more targeted ways to overcome historical forms of discrimination and limited access to capital. Personally, I'm of the view that community banks cannot be the answer because they do actually actually have a history of at times being discriminatory and perpetuating rather than solving some of the problems that we have. But they have to be part of the solution because they are such critical credit providers and because the relationships they have give them access to a different type of qualitative information and allow them potentially to enjoy different types of gains. And I do think one of the core challenges that we're facing right now is if we want community banks to remain viable and to continue to be community banks rather than just like fronts for fintechs that are, you know, largely reliant on, on wholesale funding, how is it we can make that possible? What is the set of merger policies that's going to promote a healthy community banking space? How might the federal home loan banks that traditionally were about housing finance and have gotten very far off their mission, uh, you know, potentially play a role? providing subsidized and consistent access to capital and reasonable terms to community banks? And then how can we also use those types of programs to, on the margins, shape what community banks are doing? So the community banks that we let merge with our community banks 
are the ones that are really showing that they are genuinely committed to small business lending, that they're committed to providing capital to entrepreneurs that might not otherwise have access to it, and they're doing so on terms that that are fair and actually make it more likely that business is going to thrive. And so there's actually a whole variety of really interesting policy tools available. And I think we can start to deploy them once we start to have that picture. But we need to develop that picture and we need to understand how community banks are are going to be one of, but not the only piece. And again, I think we saw that with PPP, um, you know, the, the small businesses that really managed to get access to the capital were oftentimes those that already had relationships uh, with their with their community banks. And I mentioned that there was a lot more money that went into it and, and fintechs got into it. But but really, the community banks were, were absolutely pivotal early on and I think are going to continue to play a key role in this area. You know, it's interesting in, in hearing this, it, this kind of goes to something that I've always believed, which is that we have a problem, I think, as a society in that we tend to focus more on the federal as opposed to the state or the things which are not as local to us, which affect us much more than, you know, what any particular leader on the federal level, you can argue, is saying. I don't know. I just wonder if there's anything that that can be done to get people to focus more on their local communities when, again, most things are national news. You know, even local news is not anywhere near as much of a thing as it used to be, but local is really all that that matters. A- any kind of thoughts on that? It's, I, I know it's kind of a, a broad question, but I just find it challenging to get people to to think more about what's going on within a, a 10-mile radius of where they live as opposed to what's going on in D.C. You know what? You say it's hard, but I think it all depends on who you're engaging with and who you're communicating with. I mean, we really are at an exciting moment where states and municipalities are once again becoming more innovative sites of policymaking and action and and where there has been I think some resurgence in that direction. And DC is always going to play a role in it. And DC should play a role in it, right? Uh, it's not that we're going to get away uh, or, or should aspire to get away from the federal government playing the central role that it has in a whole variety of different policymaking arenas. But there can be an interplay between what's happening at the federal level and the state level. And again, I think going back to Howard's question, community banks are a really nice example of that, right? It, the type of merger policies that we had in place for bank mergers for a very long time meant a lot of communities that traditionally had local community banks where people understood who their banker was and there was a relationship there, lost that because those banks were swallowed up in like Tic Tacs and allowed a small handful of banks to become incredibly large and bring a fundamentally different type of business model to the table. And, And we don't necessarily need to try to get rid of those banks, but we do need to, I think, really invest in recognizing we actually still have a healthy community bank infrastructure, but it's fragile. And and so what are, at times, the federal program, seems like the federal home loan bank program, like originally it was about, we want there to be long-term mortgages so people can buy homes. Uh, like how can we use a lot of the tools that we have in place, the national standards we have for, for whether or not we should allow banks to merge to allow what had been community focused organizations and could continue to be community focused organizations to 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 be competitive when they're having to compete in an environment uh, against much larger players who have a whole variety of of otherwise uh, significant competitive advantages I'm curious I mean are you uh, are you thinking about writing another book is there another topic that kind of gets your your interest it's, it's a the it's hell of an endeavor to be an author 
<laughs> it is. Actually, the joy of being an academic, they get to go back and forth between the two. And so I absolutely loved writing the book and I love having these conversations. It's also been a lot of fun to kind of go back and, and try to work on like all of the different pieces here. So what should the federal home loan banks look like? You know, how do we actually get financial regulatory policy to think about these big picture issues? How do we create structures where it's not just technocrats, but kind of a broader political conversation that's really helping to shape the, the regulatory policies that we have in place? And so right now I'm doing more kind of law review type type pieces to work through some of these ideas. And I'm sure once again, I'm going to want to turn away and be able to speak more directly to a broader audience. But but right now I'm enjoying being able to to be a little bit of a nerd and dive really deep with institutional detail in some spaces. I think that's a good place to end this Twitter space. Again, folks, I will have this as an edited podcast on all your favorite platforms. Please make sure you follow Catherine Judge. Check out her book direct as well. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Have a great day. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.